Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Six seconds to go. Comes in the Tucker. Ewing sets a screen. The shot is off. Loose ball. Ewing goes up. The basket counts. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Stricken Roll. I'm your host, Shwini Poo, in this episode 15. I am joined by the Strickland film master himself. The pot, the, the recap master, Jeffrey Rasmussen. That's at Frank Barrett 119 on Twitter. Jeffrey, how are you doing? I'm doing great, or like I said when we got on here, as good as you can do today. Um, everything, you know, it's kind of a boring off season, so it was uh, as bittersweet as it was to see the news. It was nice to get something Knicks related to, you know, talk about and have something to dive into. Because I personally believe these playoffs have just been miserable. So, you know, just looking for any excuse to talk basketball. Yeah, uh, I thought. Outside of like the first and some of the second round series, this playoffs have been pretty boring. Um, you know, I think the the East series have been terrible for the most part, other than the Milwaukee Boston series, uh, which like it sucked how non like anticlimactic Game Seven was because that series was really fucking awesome. Um, but the rest of these series have been terrible in the East. The West, it feels like, other than the Grizzlies, did anybody play a good series? I don't know. Uh, it doesn't seem like it. So maybe we need to bring the Grizzlies uh, back. Or yeah, something. I mean, oh, uh, the yeah, the the Timberwolves Grizzlies series was really good. Um, and yeah, and had, I guess, I guess I, the Suns. Yeah, I guess the Suns Mavericks series was okay. I mean, the thing is, none of those games were actually competitive. So right, and it was another it was one just like, just a boring ass game seven. So like, yeah, it yeah, went it's just like games, but that's about it. Yeah, it wasn't competitive. None of the games were competitive anyway. Um, it, but, was, it was nice. But, it was nice in a similar way that the 2011 finals was nice to see Booker and Paul get their comeuppance after like mocking Luca multiple times. That was kind of uh, you know satisfying. Yeah. All right. Well, before we get started, I do have to make an announcement. This Strickland has a Patreon. You can subscribe to it. There's a number of tiers. There's a six dollar tier that gets you access to Pod Strickland every Friday that I do with Prez. You also get access to the mailbag that we do every other week with Jeremy and Drew. Furthermore, you get access to the Strickland Discord, where the conversation never stops. There's a $9 tier. That gets you access to Strickland Roll, my solo pod, where I just dropped a very fun podcast that I did with Danny Moran about the state of play in Portland. You also get access to wonderful weekly articles by Jack Huntley and Matthew Miranda, two of the best in the business. There's further tiers. There's a $15 tier, $30 tier, $50 tier, and a $100 tier. Those get you access to a variety of other benefits, like live watch parties, merchandise discounts, listening in on pod recordings, 
and even potentially co-hosting a podcast alongside yours truly. If you choose to subscribe, thank you. And if you don't, that's fine, because none of this would be possible without you anyway. So, without further ado, let's get started. I like Booker, but... And I actually, you know, I don't really mind him, like, talking shit to Luca because I don't really understand what people want him to do. Like, it's fine to me that that's all part of the game. I like seeing Chris Paul lose because he's just like, I don't understand why he's so protected all the time. Like, yeah, he's a great player. I, but you like the conversations he's been put in and the players he's been compared to, you know, like I get that winning isn't all that matters, but when you come start talking about like, Oh, he's the second best point guard of all time. Oh, he's the point guard. Oh, he's better than such and such. Like, no, like you have to win a championship. I'm sorry. Like at a certain level of when you're talking about where a player ranks in the all time scale of greatness of NBA players, winning does matter. Winning a title matters. And like that, like I have Hakeem third overall in my personal rankings, which is like why I, I understand the argument that like, you can't just rank players based on who won the most rings. But when you're comparing a Chris Paul to like, you know, forget Steph Curry, who has lapped him years ago, but like, you know, you compare him to Isaiah Thomas. And yeah, you can just throw the numbers at me and talk about, you know, look at his efficiency and his VORP and all this fucking shit. And I'll under, I understand what that stuff means. Like, I understand it means that Chris Paul is a super efficient, great player. Yes. But like, if you don't, ever get across the finish line who gives a shit like it, as far as ranking in the all-time great like levels of you know best players on a title team because ultimately like the conversation is the best players of all time are almost all universally number one options on title teams except for maybe like bill russell is the only one that gets away with that and that's because he was you know, one generational defensive player, apparently won 11 championships. Like that's like a very, very outlier case, which Chris Paul doesn't really hold a candle to everybody else proved themselves capable of being the best player in a championship team. Right. And that's why to me, like Kevin Durant ranks below somebody like a Dirk Nowitzki does. Is he a better talent than Dirk Nowitzki? Yes. Is he a better player than Dirk Nowitzki? I don't know. I don't think that's so clear cut. Um, all time, like, did he have a higher highs than Dirk Nowitzki? Yeah, probably. I'm not sure that makes him a greater player. And and the fundamental reality is like, Dirk won a championship as the best player on the title team. And Kevin Durant, bless his heart, I don't really give a shit what people think. Anybody that thinks he's a better player than Stephen Curry is a fucking idiot. Like, I don't know what, like, what you need to see more of than the fact that people now believe Jordan Poole is a superstar. Like. Which is not a knock on Jordan Poole, by the way. He is a very good... He's a a great talent. I think he's on the path to stardom. But I don't think he is a star today in 2022. Like, the 2021-2022 NBA season, he's not a star. That doesn't mean he's like... like But that's how good Steph Curry is, is he opens up the floor for these guys. Kevin Durant to do that. I don't want to turn this into a Kevin Durant thing. But to go back to Chris Paul, Chris Paul has never done this shit. Chris Paul has not led a fucking title team. He has played with great players. Okay. He played with Blake Griffin before his knees went. He played with DeAndre Jordan when he was actually like a functional NBA player. 
those teams, like people forget it, those teams were considered when they when that trade went down, that was considered like slam dunk gonna win a championship one of these years. No question about it. Why didn't they? Because the Warriors got better. Like, and it's not because the like before they even got KD, they were better. They got Steph Curry took took a leap. Clay Thompson also took a leap. Draymond became Draymond, and they they became better. Is it fair that like you hold him to the standard of win? I mean, even letting alone that, like he blew a fucking t- series to the Rockets when they were up three one, and people like people. I don't know. Wh- I think people have forgotten so much of the bullshit that has happened in his career. So much, so many epic second round choke jobs from this guy. So yeah, I, so I so many. The, uh... I actually think the, the OKC one, one, more, the, the one, one is more more of a CP3 specific show. That, um, that game five is like the end of that game five. That's the 2013, I think that was. I think that was 2014. Okay, so that's the 2014 conference semifinals. That is, you want to know how a, one single player can choke a game? That is how. It is like they're up five or something. With like thirty seconds left, with the it, ball, it, 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 it was way worse. They were up eight with forty-five seconds left, and he had two turn, yeah, two just brutal turnovers. Well, and one of them was insane. They were up three, or they might have been up two or three. I don't. I think it was two. It was, the, it was how the, the Thunder tied it and got it to overtime. They're up two. They're inbounding the ball. Paul gets it. All he has to do is hold on to the ball, and they're going to foul him because. There's no time to like try and trap him and steal it. They were trying, they were going to foul him. And they probably, you know what? They probably did foul him. But the reason it didn't get called is why? Because he couldn't just take the foul. No, no, no. Chris Ball had to be smarter than everybody else in the room. What do you have to do? He had to try and fucking, you know, draw a three point foul 70 feet from the, like, the opponent's basket. Just a ridiculous decision. Did he get fouled? Yeah, probably. Should they have called it? Yes, almost definitely. But, why even put yourself in that position? It was so stupid. I've never seen a dumber play from a smarter player. I don't think. Uh, yeah, that was, just, that was that was all time bad. That was like I've sometimes I've I've gone back and watched. I haven't gone back and watched that in a while. But like every time I do, it's literally like it. It doesn't. It, there's never been a point where I've watched it and been like, oh, I see. Like I get it. Like I I can understand. Like no, this was not. Reggie Miller making a three, shoving fucking John Starks to the side <laughs> and making another three. Like, no, this was like just a straight up choke with no real explanation. Like, I don't know. It's just, it's one of the most bizarre things I've ever seen. And I just think he gets like, and then he blows that fucking series to the Rockets, right? They, they, they're up 20 in game six on their home floor going into the fourth quarter and Harden, I mean, this is like the perfect Chris Paul Harden game because Harden doesn't even lead this comeback. He just stays he down the, the bench. The, yeah, he's just <laughs> on the bench the entire time because Corey Brewer and Josh Smith have like the quarter of their lives. It's just, it's just like, is some of that fluky? Yes, but when it keeps happening to you, it's not a fluke anymore. And like guys like Paul and, and Harden especially, like Durant is weird because I do think he had the capability to be the best player in a title team. I really do think if he had stayed in OKC, I really think they would have won the following year. But he didn't. And that's so that puts him in a very weird category. Like Durant and Kawhi for me are two of the hardest players to rank all the time. Um for very different reasons. But like Paul and Harden 
have been thrust into conversations and comparisons to all-time great players they never had any business being in the conversation with. Like, like you know, there was there was so much endless, like, you know, you want to know why people hate the nerd stat community, stat nerd community of NBA Twitter? Go back and look at some of the Harden compared to Kobe comps. Or... Harden is the best offensive player of all time. Like, th- what is the base? Like, because to me, I don't know how the best offensive player of all time, the best scorer of all time, if you are all of these things, then you have to win a motherfucking championship at some point. Like, you cannot be the best of something of all time if you never actually did the best. Th- like, like, you can't be in that conversation. I'm sorry, you just can't. And, like, when you start looking at a career, like, Regular season, you know, you can't, we can't all have the understanding that the regular season is very different from the playoffs and then use regular season performance to say James Harden is like better than Kobe or the best scorer of all time. Like all this, it's just nonsense. It's nonsense. Like, first of all, there's only one best scorer of all time and there's no, it's not up for debate. It is Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan is the best scorer of all time. He has 10 scoring titles in, he has 10 scoring titles. The next closest to him is, I think, I want to say it's either Dur- I think it's Durant has four. Like this is and and Jordan's points per game averages are like the guy's thirty points per game in an era where like you know at least the six title years that he played in that that era is the slowest most defensive era in NBA history. Not right. that's not like a debate. That's just a fact. And like there's no debate to me who the best scorer is. You if you want to say will. Fine, you can say, "Will I don't really give a shit." I didn't see that. Uh, I also think when you, if you start looking at some of the averages back from that time, like a lot of that stuff is just so weird. Like every center back then was basically averaging like twenty and fifteen. It's just an insane, weird time. The pace of the games back then also makes no sense. Um, <laughs> like super fast, just insane pace. It, it's. If you want to argue, well, fine. I'll, I'll, I don't care. I'm not. I don't. I'm not really that interested in that debate. But at least in the last fifty years of the NBA, Michael Jordan is by far the best scorer. So, like, you know, you talk about po- the point god and Harden is this and that. Like, these guys have just been thrust into conversations. You don't get to be in that conversation until you win. Like, that's. I'm sorry. That's just the reality of it. Like, how can I have an honest conversation with you? Not you, obviously, but with, how can I have it? Like, how can anybody really be like, "Oh, well, yeah, Harden is better than Kobe"? How? Like, what? Like, really? You're gonna throw true shooting percentage and his fucking box plus minus? Like, watch fucking basketball. Like, so I, I don't know how. Like, I hate saying that shit because it's dumb. But like, I really don't know how you can watch the sport of basketball and then determine like James Harden is some type of like top 15 all-time player. It's a joke. It's a joke. I'm sorry. If, if you think that, then all you care about is regular season performance, and you don't weight play sa- playoff performance adequately. Like, I love Nikola Jokic. Nikola Jokic is not in the conversation for best player in the NBA because Giannis Antetokounmpo is alive. And Giannis already proved he can be the best player on a title team. He has been to multiple conference finals. He's been to a finals, which he completely dominated in historic fashion. Same with Joel Embiid. Great player. I think he's 
every bit the talent that Jokic is. I think there's a chance he can be the best player on a title team, just like I think Jokic has that ability, that talent. Both those guys have that talent. But until you actually do it, you don't get to be in that conversation. Yeah, I. it's tough to disagree with anything you're saying. Um, I think the, I mean, there's a lot to cover here too. Uh, so I'm just going to start. I also like how this was not supposed to be, I like how this was like not at all supposed to be what we talked about. But hey, here we are. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll be quick. <laughs> I'll, I'll, be, I'll be quick. So no, no, take, take, your, take your time. There's nothing going on. Listeners, this is not a Chris Paul pod. We promise. Um, <laughs> but I think the Chris Paul thing uh, is really interesting to me because I think when you compare him to someone like Isaiah Thomas, a lot of it is just like, it it actually is based on watching the games because it's just like, how is he not better at basketball than Isaiah Thomas, if that makes sense? Like, if you just Mm -hmm. watch them, I've watched a ton of old Isaiah Thomas clips, and then you watch Chris Paul and you watch their games, it's like, what part of basketball was Isaiah Thomas actually better better than Chris Paul at? Uh, especially if you're talking about in a modern sense where, you know, spacing and shooting is everything. And Isaiah Thomas never had, you know, a true shooting percentage over 52%. Like he's one of, he's a really inefficient high usage player for a star. And then you, I mean, those Pistons teams won because they were really good defensive teams. Was Isaiah and Thomas. And he was a really good defender. He was, but I mean, yeah. was he their most He wasn't like an all-time. No, no, um, no, no. So you have that, and then you combine that with, I think a lot of people deep down just know that Chris Paul, I mean, you touched on all of these, but he he did get, you know, pretty unlucky a few times. Was 2014 his fault? Yes. Was 2015, I mean, could he have controlled the outcome better? Yes. But Chris Paul and James Harden, the two guys you just, you know, slammed, were up 3-2 against the greatest team of all time and would have been betting favorites to win if Chris Paul doesn't just pull a hamstring. That's that's not nothing. It was Chris Paul and James Harden and role players against Steph Curry, Kevin Durant, Klay Thompson, Draymond Green in their super system, and they went toe-to-toe with them for five games and went up 3-2. Um, so, I mean, you can make an argument that Chris Paul was on a few of the best teams you know, to ever not title. Now, is that better than a title? No. But, I mean, there is something there is all I'm saying. And I think that's why people, you know, uh, are so, I don't want to say passionate, but are just like always cutting him some slack, I guess. And I mean, 2014 specifically was like, yeah, he choked away the OKC series, but he also, you know, played game seven against the defending champ. Oh, wait, no, that was the next year. 2015, excuse me. Um, They choked away game six at home against the Rockets, but they, he also, you know, went toe to toe with Kawhi Leonard and the defending champs on one leg and hit a buzzer beater or close to a buzzer beater. So I'm rambling a bit here, but I do think Chris Paul in his own annoying way as only Chris Paul can has shown that he can be a very valuable player on a team that can win a title. He just happened to not win a title. Um, James Harden, I more vehemently agree with you. Excuse me. I very much agree with you. And I think the difference between where I would draw the line between Chris Paul and James Harden is, in my opinion, Chris Paul has proven time and time again that his style, his profile, the way he plays, the output he produces 
does not lessen in the playoffs. And I think all the stats and all the eye tests back that up. He has a bunch of epic playoff performances, both on an individual and, as I alluded to, a team level. Whereas James Harden, since he's been the best player, has almost consistently gotten worse. And I think there are very real reasons for that based on how he plays. I think his style is best suited for the regular seasons when the refs are looking to call more fouls and when defenses aren't scheming for your type of play. But when you have a smart defense that knows you're only going to take layups and shoot threes, when you have refs that are going to bite their whistles a little bit more and aren't going to parade you to the free throw line 15 to 20 times, it, it just makes logical sense for Harden to be a less valuable player. So you have very real reasons, even if you can argue his regular season output is amongst the most valuable we've ever seen from a scoring and an offensive perspective. That's less important than the goal of the game is to win a championship. And if James Harden is going to get worse when the games are, when the playoff games are on the line, when, when in the playoffs, then that matters. And so I agree much more with what you said about Harden than about Paul. And I I mean, I find CP3 to be one of the most annoying players of all time, but I at least can wrap my head around why people are like, yeah, I mean, he would never win a title, but I think he's better at basketball than Isaiah Thomas. Um, a, uh, a, an analogy I would make for both sides actually is, and I know it's not apples to apples because a football player can't be as valuable as a basketball player. But when you think about, you know, the greatest quarterbacks of all time, I would say it's pretty much unanimously agreed upon that Tom Brady is the GOAT. But in my opinion, a lot of smart people look at that and say, but is Tom Brady actually the best quarterback? Like the most talented, the best, even from like a statistical output standpoint, did he, was he really the best quarterback ever? And I think it's reasonable to have a number of quarterbacks, you know, ahead of him looking at it from that way. So, you know, you, you would have the Chris Paul point of view of, well, who is actually better at playing the sport and do you value that or your body of work, the resume you put forward, that's what you actually have. And Isaiah Thomas would, in my opinion, win that debate, even though he played, you know, close to half the games Chris Paul did. I mean, he won two championships and he was probably the best player on both championship teams. So it's a really fascinating discussion, not just Thomas versus Paul, but just how do you, how do you value these things? How do you look at who, how do you measure who is actually the best? And I think that that's why, you know, it's really tough to ultimately find a middle ground because you just are always going to have people who look at it two different ways and you always are going to have different ways of measuring it. Um, and the Paul thing is just, you're never going to have people see that middle ground. Um, that was a long ramble and I ultimately did not reach no. a conclusion, but I, I, I hope what I'm saying made sense. No, what you're saying makes sense. What I will say is this, uh, I think if you're determining greatness without factoring in like the reason all these guys, the ultimate goal, I mean, yes, they got, they play for money. They play for whatever the fuck individual accolades and all that kind of shit. All of these guys, at the end of the day, you ask them what they want. Ultimately, what do you want to do, right? You want to win a fucking championship. All of them. All, Especially, like, the guys that are, you know, the best players, right? They, they, they are playing for their legacy and all that kind of shit. What, like, it's all about championships to a certain degree. So, if you're trying to make a ranking and you don't appropriately account for that, 
I just think that's so weird. Like, I, I don't know how you can rank. Like, you can. And this is what's crazy, right? You can tell the history of basketball without mentioning Chris Paul. Like, you know, I, I don't need to mention Chris Paul to account for the best teams of all time, the best champions of all time, the most dominant individual player stretches of all time, the best player. Like, he's never won an MVP, right? He's never even done that. You can tell the history of basketball without talking about Chris Paul. You cannot, like, if you're one of the best players of all time, and I'm not talking, like, okay, this is, this is not, I should rephrase this. Chris Paul is one of the best players of all time, obviously, right? He's a like first ballot Hall of Famer, no questions asked. But when we're talking about the best of the best, right, the, the guys who defined eras and all that kind of shit, if I don't need to talk about you to, to talk about an era of, like, who dominated or anything, then I just don't see how you're in the conversation. Whereas, like, if you want to nitpick about Isaiah, and I, I'm not saying you are, but, like, people talk about his efficiency and, you know, what he did and didn't do and all this kind of stuff. Isaiah Thomas is one of the few players in NBA history whose efficiency goes up in the playoffs uh, consistently. That's a fact. He is has numerous major crunch time epic playoff performances that would match up against anybody else's. Uh, this guy dropped, what is it, like 25 or something in a quarter on a fucking ankle that might as well have been broken. Like He's hobbling up and down the court on one foot. One of the most insane things you will ever see. Uh, it, if you haven't seen it, please go on YouTube and check it out because it is, I, I honestly have no idea how the fuck that was even possible. Um, he is also a player who, like one of the things I, I really struggle with, and maybe this is how we can shift into some more playoff discussion and we'll eventually talk about one, our good friend, Mitchell Robinson. Um, like I really struggle with how to value guys who play well with teammates but maybe are like less capable of singularly carrying a team and how much should that matter like i don't know how like is luca a better is he better at carrying lesser talent than steph curry i think that's you can easily make that argument i i don't really have a strong view on it but i think you can easily make that argument and it's it's reasonable okay i'm not going to knock anybody for that but how much is that really important when discussing and ranking NBA players? Like, I don't know. Because to me, that's not really a very conducive method of winning at a high level in the NBA. This has been proven time and again. Basically, the only guy who has achieved winning in this fashion is LeBron James. And even then, his most successful period was in Miami, where he didn't really play that way. Right, that was a team that much more. There was a lot more off-ball motion, cutting, all kinds of stuff going on there. Cleveland and and what has happened in LA is a lot more heliocentric, I guess you can put it. But like, other than that, there's really not an example of guys winning that way. Uh, and like, so I just don't know how much that matters. And that to me gets to the core of why I think it's wrong to rank Chris Paul over Isaiah Thomas because. To go back to the Clippers stuff, one thing that always stood out to me about those teams is Chris Paul and Blake Griffin, and even if you look at this Rockets time, which isn't, and this this criticism is not just on Chris Paul, equally shared on Harden, but it's more useful in the in the Clippers example because Chris Paul and Blake Griffin, in theory, 
should have been a super dynamic duo where both of them blended their skills together and became the best possible versions of themselves maybe better than they could have been by themselves by than they are individually the collective raised everything and that's just not how it worked out i mean i don't know if you remember that but like the main criticism of watching that, those teams was how clunky they were all the time like it was like very much your turn my turn i'll do some shit you do some shit and one of the weird things that would always play out with that team was if one of them got hurt there wouldn't be much drop off, and I actually think when Blake Griffin got hurt, they had a better win percentage without him in the in the regular season as long as Paul was healthy. So, like, that is hard for me to reconcile with a guy like Isaiah Thomas, who played with a scoring guard like Dumars, uh, who played with a Bill Lambeer and blended his skills with all these other players, and a team like you know, you really look at that Pistons team. That is the example of a team that was greater than the sum of its parts. Right, because like, where does Joe Dumars rank in the grand scheme of things in the NBA, in NBA history? Right, he's a top fifty-ish player or something like that. You know, uh, Bill Lambeer, he's I, you know, it's just this is not like some star-studded roster, but that team was greater than some of its parts. And I don't know if I've ever seen a Chris Paul team and really thought it was greater than some of its parts. If I were to say that. It's probably been this older version of him that has been less uh, less of a megalomaniac in terms of controlling every single aspect of offensive possessions. And some of that is because he knows he can't do that anymore. And he has to acquiesce to Booker or and all this kind of stuff and Harden later in his career. And even that Harden stuff, it was very much your turn, my turn stuff. Like I just have not seen an example of Chris Paul playing in a system that was like free flowing and guys, a bunch of guys getting opportunities to play on the ball, especially at his peak. I just really struggle with that. And I don't know, like I'm I'm just going to push back a little bit here. Um, I agree with you that the Rockets were very your turn, my turn. I think that, but I disagree with you very much about the Clippers. Um, I mean, the 2013, 2014 and 2014, 2015 teams when they had Redick, um, the peak version of those teams, they were first in offensive rating both seasons. So like either Chris Paul is much better than you're giving him credit for, or the offense was less clunky than you're giving it credit for. No, um, the offense, what was it? They were like, they were number one both seasons or something like that, right? Yeah, they were 2013, the, the 2013, 2014 and 2014, 2015, which was the year the Warriors won the title and won 60, whatever game, 67, I think. Um, the Clippers actually had the best offense in basketball both years. So yeah, and and so like I, what I would say to that is, Doc Rivers teams in general have a very good. They have a very strong habit of being great regular season offensive teams, and when it comes into the playoffs, it doesn't hold up as well because taking okay. turns and being ISO heavy just doesn't play out as much. And so some of that can be a Doc Rivers thing too. Like that that's fine to say that it's not just all Chris Paul. I don't know how much the New Orleans stuff is weird with him. Like you know. I just think that at some point, if you're as good as people think it is, you're supposed to break through. And if you don't, then maybe you just weren't as good as people thought you were. And like that's okay, but we just got to stop putting you in conversations with guys that, that did break through and did win. And I think, for the most part, Chris Paul is now not put in those conversations, uh, but it took way too long it, because, you know, I, I just don't understand why. For what it's worth, yep. um, the original point you were making, I think, is... 
one of the best point. Like, I, I think it's a point that we should expand on. And just when we, when we shift the conversation, the, the conversation, you, the example you gave was Luca versus Steph. But to me, it's a conversation that needs to be, it, it's the main reason that I despised. And I, and I, I actually think I was proven right, even though they got a top 1% regular season outcome, but I despised the idea of the Knicks signing DeRozan. Um, yeah, absolutely. They would have been I, so terrible. But like, I, I think the Bulls, even though they got an all-world season from DeRozan and nobody can take that away from him, they're actually worse off because of it still. Like, because when you have a guy like DeMar DeRozan and he plays a style that doesn't elevate his teammates, you can either play one way, and that is making DeRozan front and center and having your teammates basically take a backseat to him, or you can try to play a less heliocentric brand of basketball. And we know DeRozan isn't a spacer. He's not a cutter. And now all of a sudden you have a suboptimal version of DeMar DeRozan. So it's kind of this uh, players like DeRozan and on some level, a player like Chris Ball that you're describing is a sort of, if you can't win with them, they are a form of NBA purgatory because you either create a system where you have the best version of that player and you can't win, or you try and improve the other parts and you're getting a suboptimal version of one of the best players on your team. And there's a ton of players like that. And so I actually think the, uh, the analogy you made with Luca, where you said basically he's trying to be, he's trying to play a LeBron James style of basketball, but only LeBron has ever been successful at it is so correct and on the nose because the most valuable thing you can do as a player and especially as a star player is be really good, but allow your teammates to also be really good and allow good teammates to be really good. And that's why Steph Curry is so uniquely amazing because Steph Curry can bring his value and he can allow a guy like Kevin Durant to be one of the best players in the world. He does not take away from Kevin Durant at all. The worst thing you can say about a guy like LeBron James is how, when did Dwayne Wade start becoming comfortable and great next to LeBron James? It was when he said, okay, LeBron, it's your team. I guess I'm just going to start becoming really good at role player things. And he started cutting more. He started crashing the offensive glass more, but and was it less heliocentric than his Cleveland stints? Yes, it absolutely was. But it still was LeBron's team, and Dwayne Wade was not allowed to be Dwayne Wade to his full extent. Um, and that's a LeBron profile problem. And has he made it work? Of course he has, because he's one of the two best basketball players of all time. But is it a, uh, a formula for success that other players should try to replicate? I don't think so at all, and I think the... I think that players like Luca would be well, and their teams would be incredibly well served to learn skills that enable their teammates in ways that aren't them putting possessions for them on a platter. Like, if I were to say out loud, Luka Doncic is a bad enabler of teammates, I would get laughed out of the building because he's a great passer who routinely sets up threes for, you know, role players. But is he a good player enabler? 
No, he is absolutely not because the team is always going to be best served with Luca having the ball. And I know we're all going to laugh at this because we love making fun of this guy, but he turned Porzingis into a role player. That was what Luca did. And in my opinion, until Luca learns to play with a good player, aka taking a step back so that the team can take two steps forward, I think his teams have a low ceiling. Do they have a high floor? Yes, but they have a low ceiling as well. And I think that's the point you were trying to make. Yeah, and I think, um, yeah, the, the Luca thing is interesting. I, I also will say this, like, before we shift, we can shift to Nick stuff after this. Like, there's been this notion for a long time probably the last two years, three years, that the reason Luca plays the way he does is because they don't have anybody else that can create. And maybe you could have said that last year, the year before. I don't you can't say that now. Because Jalen Brunson has shown to some degree, whatever however you want to rank him, and we've talked about him previously, and I've had a lot of thoughts about him. He is a capable on ball player. He is a player that can do more than wait for Luca to kick him the ball and take advantage of that. He 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 can he can do a lot more than that, and they've added Dinwiddie, who I don't particularly love. I really don't like his play style because I think he basically tries to play like a Luca, even though he's literally Spencer Dinwiddie. Um, but like these are guys that can create, and if they can create, that means you can, as a Luka Doncic, figure out a way to be a useful player off the ball, be active off the ball, and be active in a way that be, goes beyond just like I'm a good spot up threat. You know, like that's what sets Steph Curry apart from so many players. And I, you know, I will say this about Kevin Durant to some some extent. When Kevin Durant buys into a system, he can be that type of player also because he's a super dynamic off ball scorer that you have to pay attention, you have to be keyed into at all times. Um, the problem is he has shown over the course of his career that if he has a preference, it is to lean into. ISO scoring tendencies, which is kind of disappointing. Um, I actually feel Kawhi, even though he's an ISO heavy player, is similar to Steph in the sense that players routinely benefit and are able to thrive playing alongside Kawhi, um, even though he is an ISO heavy guy. So it's like, it's not necessarily just about like not being an ISO heavy player because even Steph ISOs quite a bit. Um, I, I think it's about your ability to let to to allow others to kind of take up some of the oxygen of the offensive system, let them breathe a little bit, use their games, and um, you know I think obviously like the the premier example of a guy who did this and succeeded is Michael Jordan, right? Like bought into the triangle, and yeah, we can sit here and say the triangle is outdated and all this stuff. At the time, that was like a very revolutionary offensive system that was implemented at the NBA level, a lot of motion, a lot of, you know, all kinds of good things that are wonderful. And, um, like that's how they unlocked a lot of stuff. And sure. At the end of games that it turned into give the ball to fucking Mike and clear the fuck out. Yeah. But like the point is you don't need to do that the entire game, right? Like you need to let other guys help you win games. And if you don't, you will run out of gas almost as a rule. Like it is not possible to go through an entire NBA season and a playoff run trying to do it all yourself offensively. It's just not going to work. And to the 
credit of the Rockets, who nearly cracked through against the Warriors. The reason it did almost work for them is because they were able, they were like, they, think about what it, it took that level of two isolation players to make that work and, and potentially crack through. That's what it took, um, which is kind of insane when you think about it, right? Like, um, anyway, okay, look, we've talked enough about nebulous, random basketball conversation. The NBA playoff action is nonstop at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. This week, new customers can bet just $5 on any team to win and get $150 in free bets if they do. Looking to turn a small bet into a big payday during the NBA playoffs? With DraftKings Same Game Parlays, you can do just that. Create your own parlay by combining multiple bets like which team will win, total threes made, total rebounds, and more. And boom, you have a shot at an even bigger payout. Right now, all customers can place a same-game parlay with three or more legs and get a free bet back up to $25 if one leg doesn't hit. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code TBPN. Bet $5 on any NBA team to win their game and get $150 free bets if they do. That's promo code TBPN only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Minimum age and eligibility restrictions apply. See show notes for details. I think to Steph's, this is, and I, I mean, all we do is talk good about Steph Curry. He's just so amazing. Um, but to Steph's, ben, uh, to Steph's, uh, a positive thing about Steph is, in my opinion, even you could argue his ISOs are, they benefit the team because rarely does he ever truly ISO. He mostly runs high pick and roll, but his shooting provides so much gravity that his pick yep. and rolls basically just turn into team four on threes. And like, I don't want to underrate Draymond and the type of brain he works with and why and his passing ability. But like, if you Steph had, unlocks the passing ability and the brain and all that stuff, man, exactly. Offensive and like, there. if you, and if you put like a Julius Randall or anyone else, uh, God, why did I say Randall? Just anybody else in Draymond's spot and just routinely set him up with the four on threes he does, it would enable a good player in a way nobody arguably in, in NBA history ever has. Yeah, I mean, I think Steph is, geez, one of one. Um, I don't even, I never, it's kind of funny, it's like turned into a meme, like, oh, like, Steph doesn't shoot well, and people will say he had a good game, and it's like, yeah, well, like, he's just one of those guys where that's really possible. Like, he really doesn't need to shoot well to have a good game. And that's that's amazing for an offensive player. And, I, you know, I, I mean, I don't want to turn this into, like, a Steph fanboy thing, but I also think he's really underrated as a defensive player as well. Um, not to say he's, like, a stud, but he, he's not the liability that a lot of people would make you think he is. Yeah, right. he's, always been under, he's always been underrated because LeBron said this is who I'm going to attack. And when they play four straight finals and LeBron does the same thing, all four finals, a narrative is going to build. So yes, I a hundred percent agree that his defense yeah. has always been underrated. Uh, yeah. I don't think you play on that many top defenses by accident. Uh, all right. Enough about non Nick stuff. Let's talk a little bit about the Knicks. Uh, there is much scuttlebutt about the future of one Mitchell Robinson. Will he or won't he be a New York Knickerbocker moving forward? I have a lot of thoughts on this. Um, 
my primary thought is, I don't know. I, I mean, look, we don't know. None of us know for sure. If I had to guess, I would say no. Uh, it just seems like the people who generally tend to have good information on the Knicks are indicating he won't uh, resign. But we'll see. This is obviously could also be a negotiating ploy as he's still extension eligible. Um, we'll see. But my thoughts on it are I, I put out a little thread on this and I got a lot of, I don't know, I don't think people read the entire thread or they took it the wrong way. And so I think you saw it and yeah, there is a very like nuanced discussion to have about Mitchell Robinson because he is objectively a good basketball player. He is a good starting center. He is mm-hmm. a very, very good, potentially elite. I think he is an elite drop big. If you play a drop scheme, he is one of the best at protecting the rim at it. Um, his numbers over the course of his career in terms of what guys shoot on him at the rim, is it speaks for itself. So... Not to take any of that away. But I don't think you need... Like, do I think he's a... like? So I think he's a very good player. I think there are real flaws about his game on both ends of the floor, which we can talk about a little bit, um, or a lot bit. I think there are significant flaws and holes in his game on both ends of the floor that make me believe, ultimately, whenever it is that the Knicks compete he is not going to be the starting center for that team. Now, is that a compelling reason not to re-sign him right now? No. I think they should re-sign him if they can on a reasonable contract. If he's going to get some crazy amount of money, then don't do it. If you can get him on a reasonable contract, I would. I think they should do that. Um, I also think it is reasonable as a front office for a variety of reasons, which we can d- dive into, to not feel he's worthy of giving a lucrative multi-year extension to. I think that uh, there are... I, I, I also think, even if I understand the decision not to keep him, if the Knicks just let him walk in free agency and don't get anything back, that is a failure on the part of the front office to have had this player and developed this player over four years to probably have known at some point that you weren't going to keep him and to not have made a move before the deadline or not have had something lined up to sign and trade him or whatever the fuck it is, whatever the case might be, that is a fail. That would be a failure in the front office. So I think there's a lot of angles there to discuss, but I would like to start first with just Mitchell Robinson, the player and what makes him good. And what are the things that make him, you know, what are the, areas of his game that are deficient um so i think when you're talking about mitchell robinson you have to start with his rebounding i think a lot of nick fans know or have some idea just from watching how good uh that he's a good rebounder but i don't think there's the appropriate respect for just how valuable a rebounder he is and I think that that is because even in 2022, uh, raw rebounding totals are still overrated. So, like, he's not—he's a guy who doesn't score that much and isn't putting up like freakish peak Andre Drummond rebounding totals. So there, so he still gets—you know—his value as a rebounder still gets slightly slept on. But 
rebounding isn't, nor has it ever been fully about how many rebounds you get. It is more so about how well your team rebounds on both ends of the floor when you're on the court versus how well you do, how well they do when you're off the court. And if you look at Mitchell Robinson, he has across the board, the highest percentages when he's on the court, especially offensive, but across the board for Knicks rotations, rotation players, the Knicks have the highest rebound totals when he's on the court, and that goes all the way down to lowest when he's on the bench. No player on the team impacts rebounding the way he does, and it's not even close. So, And that matches with the eye test. As someone who watched a lot of Knicks this year, I know Julius Randle got a bunch of rebounds, and I know people who... You know, are still defending Julius rebound, or excuse me, Julius Randle to this day, like to use his rebounding as a means to defending him. Like, hey, he's not that bad, but he, from an impact standpoint, doesn't impact rebounding that much. And if you watch the games, it's because a lot of his rebounds are gotten when Mitchell Robinson is doing the dirty work. Randle gets the low leverage rebounds as the rest of the team boxes out. Um, on the other hand. Robinson is the one who routinely creates rebounds all by himself, especially offensive rebounds. And that's value that's valuable in a vacuum for any team, but for a team like the Knicks that struggles in the half court, he's creating points out of thin air and that is just immeasurably valuable to their team and I think we won't understand it until he's gone. So I think that's where you would have to start. Um, yeah, I do think the rebounding stuff more, I, I think more so even on the defensive or sorry, the offensive end, he's like, I mean, he, he's arguably the best offensive rebounder in the league. Second best at worst. I think, I think Gobert is comparable. So he's like an elite offensive rebounder. I don't know what the specific stats are for both of them, but I personally think Mitch is a better offensive rebound putback guy. Um, just having watched them, just because he has more vertical pop. Although, and this is another part of it, like his vertical pop is not the same as it was when he first came to the NBA. Maybe that comes back, and he was getting his legs underneath him. I don't think so. Like I personally think he's just a diminished athlete right now. Not, and that doesn't mean he's not an elite athlete. I obviously still is, but. He was like a gazelle, like 99th percentile, freaky big guy athlete his first couple years in the league. And I thought even last year, even though he had bulked up a little bit, I really thought he was like almost at the perfect weight where he was still pretty nimble, still could get out on switches comfortably. This year, I, I did not see that as much. Some of that was, you know, he was not in shape. I got a lot of pushback on this, and I got to say, I don't really give a shit. Um, he was not in shape to start the year. I don't care what condition he was in. He was always oh, off his feet for all these months. He was fat. Okay. He was fucking fat. That's what he was. This is not like, oh, he's just conditioning. needed. No, he was fat. That's what happened. That's not, I'm sorry. You're in a contract year. You can't show up in shape in a contract year. Like, you know, you worry about somebody. How focused am I going to, how focused is this guy going to be? How dedicated is he going to be? Once he gets a multi-year commitment, once he gets money, that sets him up for the rest of life. How committed is this guy going to be to being the best version of himself? And with Mitch, I don't think that's a. I don't. I don't know how to answer that. 
I mean, he hasn't been the best version. He he's not really he's not improved at anything on the offensive end at all since he came to the NBA. He has not improved a single fucking thing. He's actually gotten worse at free throw shooting somehow. He still doesn't set a screen worth anything. Like he's just absolute worthless screen setter. Uh, great rim running threat, great vertical lob threat. No question about that. That's always been the case with him. He has zero playmaking ability. He occasionally, like, I think he's done like he did like two dribble moves this year, and everybody was like, "Oh my god, here we go!" It's you can literally count on on one hand how many off the dribble moves this guy has made, right? Like that's how unrealistic it is, or how rare it is. I should I should say he basically doesn't do anything other than come off pick and rolls for lobs. And if he has to, if somebody's in his way and he has to make any type of adjustment off the dribble or go through contact, he's not very good at it at all. And I mean, I think that's being generous. And he just generally is not doing anything other than rim. Like he has no utility other than that. Like rim running, offensive rebounding. That's about it. You know, that that's really about it. And uh, you know, as good as he is at those things. It is fair if your goal is to optimize a build around R.J. Barrett and Obi Toppin and Emmanuel Quickly to believe a long-term investment in Mitchell Robinson, as good as he is on defense, is not worth it offensively because, as we've seen with Rudy Gobert, and this is the funny thing, we see this with Gobert in the playoffs, teams switch on him, he can't punish the switch, and that bogs down their offense, which is basically every year a top five offense, whatever the fuck it is. That is what would happen to Mitchell Robinson in the playoffs. And I don't know if people really understand that. Like, we haven't seen it because he hasn't been here, but the way for him to maintain being playable in the playoffs as you go on against better competition is either to be able to punish switches, which he cannot do. That's not even like a debate. If you think he can punish switches, I, I don't even know what to tell you. There's no evidence of it. He's never demonstrated a single smidge of talent to do so. He can't hold post position well because I think he has high hips, which holds him back. There's a lot of things going on, but he cannot hold post position well. He can't punish switches. He, he cannot. He doesn't have a post move. He doesn't have good touch on anything other than layups at the rim. Um, that's just what he is as a player. And like, he's four years into his career. Why should I believe that's going to change? And his usage is like. I mean, I think it was single digits this year, maybe. I want to say I'm, I'm looking it up right now. Basketball Reference has his so. usage. It's at 11.4, which is a career low. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, <laughs> and, and so he went from 12.1 as a rookie, 13.8 his second year, and 11.8 and 11.4 is two years under tips. There's this notion I've been reading that, oh, he he's not happy with his limited role offensively. What the fuck? Is his like what expanded role can you possibly give this guy? I have no idea. I have no idea. There's nothing you could do with him. He's a terrible. Like you, you can't yeah. do anything with him aside from dunks. Like I just, I just don't really see what that is. And I am okay if a front office looks at that and says, you know what, this is not a player we want to commit to. It's too limiting. That's fine. What it does, though, is it puts pressure on them. If they let Mitch walk, 
right? Let's say like he signs four fifty five, whatever, which is basically the max he can get in New York. But let's say he signs four fifty five in Detroit or wherever the fuck it is, and the Knicks replace him with like you know fucking Javale McGee. That's going to be a major drop off, uh, and that will be a problem. But the actual, the isolated decision, in my opinion, there's a very reasonable argument that not signing Mitchell Robinson is a perfectly acceptable decision for the front office to make uh, between his offensive limitations. And I want to talk a little bit about his defense because as good as he is as a drop defender, his kind of, his reduced mobility makes him less scheme versatile and we saw with Jericho Sims, like, for Tom Thibodeau to change his, to experiment more with switching and, and trapping and all kinds of stuff more aggressively with Jericho Sims than he ever has with Mitch is, I mean, it says something. I don't know what it says, but it definitely says something about that guy. Because Mitchell Robinson was a freak athlete who we saw switch a lot his first couple of years. And that was kind of like the appeal, right? It was like, oh, wow, what can this guy do when we get a real coach, real team, whatever? And we've seen less of that the last couple of years. Some of that's on Tibbs being very rigid. But the fact that he was willing to experiment with Jericho Sims as a you know 58th overall pick kind of thrust into the rotation just for the second half of the year, like the stuff we saw against Brooklyn, the both times we played them, where he was having him switch and trap onto KD and stuff like that, I've never seen him do that with Mitch, ever. Like, not aggressive like that. And so I do think that speaks somewhat to maybe, and we'll see if that's, is that Tibbs's misguided talent identification that Mitch can't do that, or can Mitch not actually do that? I don't know. I don't know the answer, but I would suspect it is that he doesn't trust him to execute those schemes because his movement and space hasn't been as good. He's also just like, I mean, how often was he just sucking wind after like four minutes, right? Like he's not in tip top shape. Um, I just think there's so much there that is a problem. And then you get, you see him like these matchups where you'll have like Jokic. I don't think he's ever once played well against Nikola Jokic. And, not, and that's not to say like, God, it's easy to play Nikola Jokic. He's always in foul trouble when we play the Nuggets. He like he's never been able to stay on the court because he, when guys can bully him in the post and they can body him, he gets frustrated super easily and he starts doing stupid bullshit slap down fouls, cheap fouls that just get you into foul trouble. He doesn't have a proper appreciation for how important he is to the team at times, and he struggles with physicality, with post scores. Cat is another guy that's given him trouble, and Bead obviously, like, yes, those are the best kind of scoring centers in the NBA, but. If you're trying to tell me that this is a guy who is like some unique defensive weapon, I don't think there's that much evidence of that anymore. Is he a really good defensive player? Yeah, I do. But I don't think he's an irreplaceable defensive talent.
our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you mean cellar. the mini fridge? It's a mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts.